Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Things definitely are looking up for Ohio with the coronavirus. We hit the major benchmark we've been looking for over the weekend. It's one of the stories we'll be talking about on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Layla Atassi is taking a well-deserved day off. I hope you had a good weekend in the heat. Absolutely. Survived. Laura, Laura, I saw you out in some kind of really strange looking water park. (laughs) And I did, I, you know, I had bunion surgery about five weeks ago now. So yes, even I was out there in this inflatable giant obstacle course with my kids and my sister and my niece and nephew. And we had a ball. It was nice to be in a cold lake when it's 90 degrees out. Yeah, it it looked like the perfect way to spend a very, very warm day. But let's not complain about the heat because, you know, it snowed (laughs) at the beginning of May. 45 (laughs) degrees in rain. I mean, I'll take it. It's summer. You're supposed to sweat a little bit. Let's begin. What major benchmark did Ohio hit in the coronavirus pandemic? And why is it just a bit less significant than it was when we first heard of it? Jane Cahoon, we actually hit this pretty much in alignment with what was supposed to happen when we hit it. But the alignment was broken a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I thought maybe, you know, there were fears that we really wouldn't make it, but we did. We made it to a coronavirus case rate lower than 50 per 100,000 residents over a two-week period. That number is 49.5 to be exact, and that's for the period from May 22nd to June 4th. So this, as you said, is the benchmark that seemed like it was going to be out of reach for a while after DeWine announced this on on March 4th, that 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 was the goal that we needed to get to for him to lift most of his health orders. So just to give you some perspective here, the last time we were below 50 was June of last year. The rate shot up to a high of 845.5 in mid-December. And that was just as the vaccination effort was getting started. As recently as mid-April, it was around 200, but it's just continued to trend down over the spring with vaccinations. So the reason, as you said, it's not quite as significant anymore is that DeWine changed course on the benchmark and he lifted the health orders anyway on June 2nd without reaching that particular metric. But he thought we were where we needed to be to do that. Uh, But you can't say it's not significant because it's a result of the cases continuing to drop as more people get vaccinated. In fact, the cases, the hospitalizations and deaths are all trending down. Uh, but, uh, you know, when DeWine made this announcement over the weekend, he, he still cautioned, hey, don't don't let our foot off the gas. If you're if you're not vaccinated, you, he said you should continue to wear a mask in public and 
Ohioans uh, who aren't vaccinated should go out and get the shot. I think there was actually some method to his madness here. He announced this, as you said, the benchmark in March, and then we went in the opposite direction. We rocketed (laughs) for a while and everybody was concerned. But when he announced that he was lifting all of his health orders, regardless of this, he did push it, that lifting until June 2nd. It was a couple of weeks out. And one of the questions from the reporters about, well, what happened to the benchmark? He said then, look, we might get there by then. And he wasn't off by much. It was right. only a few days. So I actually think he could see the science that and, and saw the projections. And when he said June 2nd, he had data in hand that showed we're going to hit that number June 2nd. So I'm really not changing the rules, but I'm getting all the pressure off my back of all the crazy people that are demanding a lifting of the restrictions. So, I mean, it seems like a very, very cagey, strategic and wise move by the governor, the way he handled this. <laughs> Because he got what he wanted. The, the orders were lifted at right. about the same time. So, And now everybody is going maskless and we'll have more cases now. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, people are still wearing a lot of, um, a lot of masks out there. I, I, they're, I, they're, you keep hearing they don't want to get cold. There's a I lot have, of bad colds out there and they don't want to get them. I, this is Laura Johnston. I think it's, there's a, a transition period, right? The, you know, when they first lifted those orders a couple weeks ago, I would not dream of going into a store without a mask. But like, you just get used to the idea. It's like, you know, dipping your toe in. I wasn't going to just jump in head first. But now I'm like, oh, you know, it's hot. I really don't want to put that mask on even just to go in the store for a few minutes. But so I'm seeing fewer people wearing them now than I did even a few weeks ago. The thing I think that's going to take and this will be a good thing, is if you have a head cold in the future and you're out and about, I think you'll wear a mask. I think I think we've all learned that that's a, well, most people, that's a courtesy that we can extend to others to not spread what we have. And that, that didn't exist in the past. Nobody did that. I agree. Uh, I think we're a lot more conscious of our health at this point and spreading it. And then there are people that, that are thinking that if you're ever in a, any kind of mass transit, airplanes, buses, whatever, you should automatically wear it because you're surrounded by people whose air you're breathing. But we'll have to see. Anyway, it's a it, it, it's a good moment. We're getting further and further into normal, a major benchmark hit. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's to become of the Hudson American Legion post that censored a decorated veteran who gave a Memorial Day speech that included details of the roles of black soldiers in creating the holiday. Laura Johnston, this is one of those stories that really defies the imagination. I I can't believe that the Hudson Post did what it did. And, but what you can believe is this thing has become an international story because everybody's shocked by this. Absolutely. This story just keeps unfolding. And what's ironic is they tried to silence this man, Army Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Kempter, who just wanted to talk about how Black Americans showed great respect for the fallen in the country after the Civil War. I mean, that doesn't sound controversial at all. And they just silenced him literally by turning off the microphone. And now it's an international viral story. So obviously it completely backfired on them. But the American Legion Department of Ohio announced on Friday that it suspended this chapter post 464 and that they're at risk of permanent closure. Jim Garrison, he was told he had to resign from his position as post officer and his membership from the Legion. Also, Cindy Suchan, she was the chair of the Memorial Day Parade Committee, president of the Legion Auxiliary, was also asked to resign. And 
the, the chapter might be gone totally. The chapter has 60 days to respond to this. But from what I saw on Twitter, they weren't thinking a lot of members were going to be sticking up for for their existence. You would think that anybody that's a member of that would be putting their head down and hoping nobody knew they were a member. We still haven't had a good explanation about why they chose to do this. They, they had read his speech mm-hmm. and they had said to him, take those parts out without without really explaining it. And and he finally, you know, it was his speech and he started to go into it and they and they muted the microphone. It, it boggles the mind, especially Hudson is was the home of John Brown, who mm-hmm. is celebrated uh, for for what he did in this arena. And yet now what Hudson's known for is squelching free speech about black soldiers on Memorial Day. Not a good day for the Summit County suburb. No, let me just read one one line from the statement the, the Legion put out. It said, the American Legion Department of Ohio does not hold space for members, veterans, or families of veterans who believe that censoring black history is acceptable behavior. So at least the, you know, the Ohio State um, Division of this came out very strongly against it. So, I mean, hopefully somebody learned something from this. The Hudson mayor also condemned it. I mean, everybody's condemning it. Right, There's exactly. nobody defending it in and the people who did it really have not offered any kind of real explanation. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan trying to derail a bill that would give local governments more control over renewable energy projects? Jane Kuhn, I could also pose this question is, why is he trying to derail a bill that will cripple renewable energy projects? <laughs> Correct, and that you pretty much got it, the reason. He is very concerned about this bill because he said it basically has the potential to drive away businesses that want to invest in renewable energy in Ohio. This is a bill called Senate Bill 52. It would let local officials ban large wind and solar farms in their communities and essentially usurp the authority that that now lies with the Ohio Power Siting Board. Dolan said, you know, this not only could shut the door on future investment in Ohio, but he's worried you know, that it would change the rules midstream and endanger projects that are already in development, including in some cases after substantial investments have been made. So he said this would send a message to everyone that Ohio is not a stable place to invest in. He uh, was among five Republicans who joined eight Democrats to vote against the bill, but it passed the Ohio Senate last week and now goes to the House for consideration now, he's not the only one sounding the alarm here. You know, pro-business groups like the, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, the Ohio Business Roundtable, Toledo Regional Chamber of Commerce, and Columbus Partnership, they've all weighed in acknowledging, yes, there's a desire for more local input, but the state shouldn't put up barriers to renewable energy investment and the economic opportunity that it represents. But, you know, supporters of this bill don't see it that way. They have a different viewpoint. Senator Rob McCauley, who's a Republican from Napoleon, and uh, his district includes the state's largest collection of wind farms, he he said it's necessary to protect people's property rights, people who never expected to have these towering wind turbines or fields of solar panels as their neighbors, and they're worried about declining home values and and things like that. But he also said that developers have taken advantage of this lack of local control to transform these large swaths of rural rural land. So, you know, the, he thinks the locals should have more authority to determine the best use for, for lands. You know what I find fascinating about this 
is this is the same legislature that took away the right of local communities on uh, fracking and gas drilling. Mm-hmm. There used to be local governments could rule that we don't want drilling done for natural gas in our borders. And there was a Mayfield Cemetery that wanted to, to make some extra money by allowing drilling. And the legislature prohibited local communities from ever regulating that again, even though they had been doing it forever. So now, now they're coming in to say, "Are you oh, suggesting a bit of hypocrisy?" Yeah, it's here, completely. Chris. I mean, it's like either you're going to say the state handles this, which is what they did when they took that right away. It was very controversial. The, the communities were furious about losing the ability to stop. And you know, natural gas you drilling could go is on messy. and on about this too, like guns and plastic right. bags and, you right. know, all kinds of things. but all of a sudden they want to take care of it and really that i think what this is proof of this is completely bogus it has nothing to do with local control this is a bunch of anti-renewable energy people trying to protect fossil fuels and make it hard for these new industries to prosper in ohio i hope matt dolan is successful in in killing this this is a really bad idea but it's yet another in a long line of examples of how people who have no thought about the the greater population of the state have control over what's going on. It's a bad bill, and yet it's moving along. So we'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Today is the final day of the Wolstein Center Coronavirus Vaccination Clinic. What made it unique in the nation, and what are the nearly final numbers? Laura Johnston, this thing got wide acclaim. We've talked about it repeatedly, but our story saying it was winding up today told me something I did not know. I I think it's probably the same thing I did not know, that the Wolstein Center was the only type 1 FEMA vaccine clinic in the country that used the stationary patient model. And that was developed by the planning supervisor at the Ohio Emergency Management Agency, where basically everybody filed in, sat in a seat, and then the vaccine came to you. The National Guard brought it to you on a rolling cart. So that meant few to no lines or waiting and improved patient flow and experience. And we have raved about this on this podcast and in, in, on our site, that how well it worked. It's amazing it didn't get tried anywhere else. I mean, yeah, that, I, was, I take it that, that was the thing that, that really yeah, struck you. I mean, the idea, I mean, it was so efficient. We all, all of us who went there, you sat down and within 15 seconds you were done. You just had to wait the 10 minutes so, you know, you didn't have hives or something. Yeah, but, they were like waiting for you to sit down. Yeah, I mean, I both both times I went down there, I my I was barely in the seat before they were next to me getting ready to go. Whereas in the other places, those guys were stationary and people had to line up and then move closer and closer. This seems like it was a much more efficient way to do it. So I was kind of surprised no one else did. Back when this was unveiled, it was looked upon as the model that would be used elsewhere. So how many doses did they end up giving out? Uh, 260,000 vaccine doses, more than 650 members of the armed forces over a 12-week period, 300 community organizations helped with a vaccine effort, and they had 25 language interpreters to help translate information to people. So, I mean, this was 12 weeks, but I feel like we're talking about some huge historical event that happened a long time ago. It was not that long ago. It just seems so incredible to have this Thing in our midst that we went through and now is no longer needed. I mean, because when it opened and Chris, you were the, you know, the first day there, this was just like, th- you know, hallelujah. Thank you. We have a mass vaccination center. We can get vaccinated. We can move on with our lives. I mean, I don't think I can understate how 
important this is, Cleveland. Well, there are a lot of lessons we've talked about from the pandemic, a lot of things that we need to fix, you know, the health county health boards and the disaster that they are and the underfunding of the state health board. This is a lesson of that you want to repeat in the future. If Mm -hmm. we ever need to do wide scale vaccinations, this is the way to do it. I mean, this worked beautifully. And I think everybody now has a warm feeling about the Wellstein Center. If they ever talk about closing that, I think there's... (laughs) You know, We're gonna put up historical plaques and be like, like, wait, wait, wait. Right. There, the, ultimately, there could be a historical plaque there because it was what really got Cleveland ahead of the pandemic. So you can still go down there and get your shot till eight o'clock tonight. They'll give you an appointment for a second shot at a drug mart. They're giving out the Pfizer in this final day. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much money does President Joe Biden want to spend on the Great Lakes in his budget proposal? And why is Congressman Dave Joyce, long a huge proponent of Great Lakes spending, suddenly urging caution about this budget? Jane Cahoon, I think it's interesting that that Dave Joyce, while talking about the Great Lakes, is urging caution on spending. Well, that's probably because the total package is $6 trillion. That's Biden's uh, total budget package. And as Sabrina Eaton put it in her story, the programs to benefit the Great Lakes would be a wash in cash. if this is approved. Although I would caution that this is just a proposal. It's a wish list and it isn't likely to be adopted in its current form. And Congress has the last word here. But with all that said, this plan would boost funding to repair wastewater and drinking infrastructure by $464 million. It would provide $20 million, a $20 million increase to help communities reduce sewage overflows. And as far as the Great Lakes, a $10 million boost in funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, that would be funded at a level of $340 million. It would also more than double funding programs to reduce lead in drinking water. It would give a $2 billion funding boost to the US EPA and fully fund pre-engineering and design work for the Brandon Road Lock and Dam Project in Illinois. That's the thing that keeps the invasive carp, Asian carp, from escaping into the Great Lakes. But uh, One Great Lakes advocate said this was really a historic opportunity to protect the lakes, protect water, health, jobs, and quality of life. So, But uh, you wanted to know more about Dave Joyce, who he's a Republican co-chair of the Great Lakes Task Force, and he has fought hard, as you said, for Great Lakes funding in the past. And he said he is glad to see that money channeled there to protect the lake. But like a lot of other Republicans, he has serious concerns about this massive size of this $6 trillion budget. And he said, as we work to reignite our struggling economy, Washington should not be burdening American families with trillions of dollars in new taxes and saddling future generations with unprecedented debt. So he's, you know, he, I think his concern is with the overall package. Uh, One little interesting point here is that Republican Senator Rob Portman said he would provide even more money for the Great Lakes restoration, more than this $340 million. He thinks it should be $375 million. However, he was really critical of what he called exorbitant increases in government spending and, you know, claims. He's really upset that yeah, it's uh, let do that? the tax cuts expire. But, but how do you do that? How do you complain about exorbitant spending while saying, I want to spend more? I mean, it's it's just party politics is what's going on. That makes well, no he's sense. mad about them letting the these tax cuts expire. That's yeah. the the budget would do that. So, and there's a bunch of other stuff in the budget, a bunch of other money for other programs. 
government buildings, programs to lower drug prices, feed hungry kids, help Appalachian communities and Ohio coal country and money for NASA and Amtrak. So there's a lot of other stuff in there. We'll have to see what the Congress does to it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How rare was the cancellation of Cleveland's beloved Labor Day weekend air show last year? And what's the good news for 2021? Lord Johnson, this press release rolled into our mailbox last week and it was like, wait, wait, did we know this? It, it, what, what, did we know it was coming back? And people got kind of excited. So what's the deal? Yeah, we're coming back in 2021. This has only been canceled twice since 1964, both really recently from 2020 because of the pandemic. And in 2013, when the government uh, sequestration was happening, remember, it's shut down. So these, this is a really exciting event in downtown Cleveland. It's a Labor Day tradition. And I think, you know, obviously it's the end of summer. Usually it's beautiful weather. And you start hearing these planes practice the whole week ahead. And you like look up and you're like, oh, it's that time of year again. So it's set for Saturday through Monday, September 4th through 6th at Birth Lakefront Airport. We're going to have the Thunderbirds here, which is the Air Force Precision Flying Team that will soar, twist, and turn over Lake Erie. What I didn't realize is that this is a nonprofit that puts on the show every year. It costs hundred grand just for that jet team, and they haven't had revenue brought in since 2019, aside for a few PPP loans. So um, they're, they're making this happen, but they're a little cash-strapped. What What is remarkable is that Cleveland almost every year has had either the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. And there are a bunch of places in the country that rarely get to see them. But the tradition is so strong here that they come back every year. I hadn't realized that it had only been canceled once previously. I remember when it was back in right. 2013, although it didn't seem like it was that long ago. <laughs> but but I, but I last year was really very unique in that not doing it. So people will be excited. It, it was one of those, Mark Bono wrote the story and it was very much in the realm of, you know, a sigh of relief. We're, we're getting back to some of the normal things that people look forward to each year. And it is really good news. I feel like there were some things that were canceled for this summer only because the planning had to take place so far back that no one knew what the restrictions or the, you know, the climate was going to be like this summer. But now that we know, it's nice to know that these traditions are back. Okay, well, if they ever close Berkeley Lakefront Airport, we'll have to figure out where their show should go. But they need to think about that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a Latvian national accused in a huge international cybercrime case being prosecuted in federal court in Cleveland? Jane Cahoon, this is weird because it's something that is much bigger than Cleveland, and yet it's right here in our backyard. For sure. I, I think Probably the reason is that it happened to involve a couple of Northeast Ohio school districts and a, uh, as well as a North Canton real estate business uh, as far as the victims of this. But yeah, cyber, crimes, it, cyber crime is an issue we've been hearing a lot about lately with the attacks on the uh, Colonial Pipeline and the meatpacking plant. I find this really quite scary, but this one is also big and uh, the federal authorities have accused a woman named Ala Witta. I don't know if I'm um, mangling that name, but as you said, a, a Latvian national being part of this cybercrime network that attacked millions of computers worldwide and fleeced money and confidential information from victims. And as I said, that includes two Northeast Ohio school districts, Avon and Akron, and also this unnamed real estate business in North Canton. Uh, supposedly, they drained money through wire transfers uh, and 
Although the Akron schools said they never lost any money and they weren't contacted by authorities. So I don't know what exactly is up with that. But anyway, as you said, even though this is a worldwide case, federal prosecutors decided to seek this indictment here. And uh, Witta faces 19 charges, including conspiracy, wire fraud, bank fraud, aggravated identity theft involving this criminal scheme that's called TrickBot. And that has origins in Russia, according to this 61-page indictment. Now, TrickBot developers are accused of using various forms of malware to hit these computers of local governments, hospitals, businesses, banks all around the world to capture personal information and get access to to bank accounts. And seven people were charged in this, but for some reason, only Witta's name appears on the indictment. They uh, redacted the names of the other ones, so I also don't know what's up with that. But anyway, she worked as a malware developer for TrickBot and, uh, and oversaw, this is what the feds say, the creation of code related to the monitoring and tracking of the viruses so, uh, you know, what's strange about it, about her, uh, if you're, you know, we all know Russia protects a lot of the, the people that are doing cyber crimes. I mean, almost all of the ransomware is coming from, from Russian areas. So if you're the leader or heavily involved in a big cyber crime thing and you're from that part of the world, you're pretty safe. But the last thing I would think you would do is fly into the United States because yeah, she was in Miami yeah. in February when she got detained. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like, what do you think is going to happen? This is a huge international problem. Everybody is upset about it. Russia is providing haven for all of this. But you step foot in this country, you're going down. Yeah. And I mean, she was born and raised in Russia, apparently. But recently, in recent years, she had been living in Latvia. So, yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, the and as I said, this this really had a far reach. The you know, other than the victims from the United States that, you know, they were from the United Kingdom, Australia, Belgium, Canada, Germany, India, Italy, Mexico, Spain, and Russia. So, um, but yeah, why would you go to Miami? It'll be fun. It'll give us, it'll be a fun story to cover in our backyard. You know, cybercrime is the story of the year so far after the coronavirus and, and it's getting worse and worse. And now we'll have lots of information unveiled. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is a smart electric meter, and should people having them installed on their homes be afraid of them? Or Johnson, these questions come up because First Energy is putting these out there, and in the Q&A they sent to residents, all the questions were negative. Like, will you be able to track when I'm home or when my business is open? And will this affect my health instead of making it kind of a positive thing about you be able to track your energy use? So what are these things, and what's the truth about them? Yeah, I agree. The FAQ is very defensive, but uh, this is a massive undertaking. The company's in the middle of a three-year effort to install these smart meters throughout Ohio, and it's it's a coverage area. Approximately $250 million effort to modernize the system. They'll be working at least through December 2022. These meters work a lot like the regular meters you've had on the outside of your home. They measure how much electricity is being used. But you won't need a meter reader anymore coming to your house to look at it. They're meant to provide more information that flows automatically to the company so that they can see it instantaneously. Uh, by 2023, they'll know when your power is out automatically, so you won't have to like call in and tell them that your power is out. Uh, this is happening over, a, obviously, a period of years. So customers are going to receive notification about a month ahead of their installation with this brochure letting them know about the process. And that's where all these 
FAQs came from, like, is this frequency going to harm me? And the idea is like, it's like a garage door opener. That's, that's the kind of frequency that we're talking about. The thing that uh, the readers immediately picked up on was, is this a way for them to deal with peak hours? In other states, the, the electric rates go up from two to six. Like if you're using power between two and six, you pay 50% more than the rest of the day. And the, the current meters would not allow them to do that. There's, no, there's nothing in those meters that would allow them to know when you're using your kilowatt hours. The smart meters would allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a dashboard where you can look and see when your, your power use is. So even though First Energy said that's not the purpose of the meters, smart readers of our story that published uh, whatever it was Saturday immediately said, is this just a way to start charging for peak use? Chris, Ultimately, that's probably true. I don't know why you would be so you know, concerned that First Energy would do something that harmed consumers. <laughs> well, it does, actually, it doesn't harm consumers. You can make an argument that by, by doing that, you reduce the need for more power plants. That by charging people more for peak hours, they won't, you don't use your washing machine or your dryer then during peak hours and it reduces the need for power plants. There's a great deal of, of uh, conservation that goes yeah, along no, I, with that. I think it makes sense. And it'll be interesting to see when the, this kind of data exists, what the peak hours are, because I think in the past, I've always read that peak hours you know, are before work and after work. And if people are working from home and we're all using our energy at our houses, I bet you, you know, we're all like, I can do a load of wash in the middle of the day or run my dishwasher. I never would have done that before. Yeah. Um, That'll and be that, interesting. And that's the advocacy is that they're they're trying to get people to to change that. The weird thing in our story was that, that they said to our, to our reporter, this will be a way to see if you're using playing video games in, in peak hours. I had no idea that video games were a big user of electricity. <laughs> I always but, thought it was like hair dryers, like anything that's like a lot of heat at one time. Or motors yeah. or something. Yeah. But I guess the chipsets and the video games are chewing up power. Anyway, interesting Another story. reason not to let my kids play. <laughs> we'll have a uh, follow-up that lists the individual communities so people can see when it's coming to them. Should publish sometime today. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, well, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We will be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. 